Thanks for tuning in to How's Things, a podcast and radio show from the David A. Howe Public Library right here in Wellsville, New York. I'm Nick Gunning. My guest today is Alex Irvine, a best-selling author whose work spans novels, comic books, graphic novels, games, and animation. And if that isn't enough, he's also a Jeopardy champ. Alex, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. <laughs> so you won your first game of Jeopardy in 2015. I, I have to know, how stressful was that experience? Well, so it's funny because uh, it's really stressful when you're, when, you know, when you when you fly out there and you're sitting in the hotel overnight, and then you get up in the morning and you're with all the other contestants on the bus going yeah. over to the, the studio. You get in the green room and you're looking around wondering who you're going to play, when you're going to get to play. And then after, you know, they, they come in and they talk to you, the, the backstage crew, which yeah. is great. And then you walk out onto the set. And that was when everything really changed for me because I was like, oh. This is just a place like, uh-huh. you know, my feet are on the floor and there's the podiums and that's where Trebek is going to be. And OK, I get this now. So, yeah, that first game was really fun. That's interesting. Um, I mean, it seems like being in the space would be intimidating. Be like, oh, my gosh, this is this is a Jeopardy stage. But that yeah. that was comforting to you having like a solid yeah. spot. Yeah, I found it. You know, it was completely the other way around. Yeah, it was it was because then it was real. And there I was. Yeah. And I thought, OK, all right, this is this is uh, it's a place and I'm in it. So yeah. Let's play. Yeah. So yeah, I won the first game, and then the second game, I had him in the second game, and then I and then I talked myself out of the right answer in Final Jeopardy. <laughs> oh, um, the long story, I'll try to keep the, I'll give you the short version of the long story. Um, <laughs> one of the other contestants in that game was uh, big into art. She she talked about art all the time in the green room, and okay. she was wearing a Monet scarf that she talked about having gotten as Giverny and all this. And so I saw, and the final Jeopardy question was on European art. So the, the question pops up, and it's about an artist who used, talking about the swirly effects this artist achieved, um, and a critic was talking about it. And I immediately thought, oh, well, uh, that's got to be Van Gogh. Right. It sounds just like, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, no, the whole thing with Van Gogh is that nobody was talking about him while he was alive, and the mm. critic was talking while the artist was still alive. And then there's this Monet scarf, like, in my peripheral vision. <laughs> and uh, so I spent Mind 30 games. seconds of... Yeah, I, I talked myself right out of it, and oh, um, and then she got it wrong too. Oh, um, wow! Yeah, and the guy the guy who was in third place was the only one who actually answered Van Gogh, and so he won. Oh wow, that's uh, that's yeah. a comeback. I am, yeah. I mean that they they knew what they were doing when they wrote that music, right? I mean, I would think that music coming on would be intimidating. Did you find that <laughs> nerve wracking? Yeah, I mean, well, the first time, the first game, I knew the final Jeopardy question like right away. I looked yeah. at it, and I was like, oh, okay, target. And uh, so I wrote down target and that took two seconds and then I just sat there the rest of the time, yeah. um, you know, waiting for just it to jamming. be over and trying, trying not to make faces. Right. But then, yeah, the second one, boy, I was, I, I was, that was agonizing. And then, uh, and then the truth is when it was over, I was like, okay, I did that. <laughs> and, and it was, uh, I got on the plane saying to myself, I, I, I want to win a game. Yeah. If I, if I win a game, I'll come home happy. Oh yeah. You know? Um, and, uh, so I won that first game and, and, yeah. uh, and then I was kind of irritated at the way I blew the second game. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, I won a game. Now I can go home. Yeah, but you've got the title. That's the thing. I mean, that's that's going to be in your obituary, for heaven's sakes. That's a, <laughs> I know. That's a title you, you don't lose. So Yeah. And they call you champ the whole rest of the day after yeah. you win a game. It's kind of fun. Yeah. No, that sounds yeah. great. Was there a moment that really hit you like, this is so surreal? Here I am. Yeah. Um, everybody has to do this little anecdote thing. And you fill out oh, a right. little card yeah. that, with a selection of anecdotes. And, and I... And I wrote about this one time when 
I used to have these two dogs, and one was smart and one was dumb. <laughs> and the dumb dog fell in um, a ravine one time in a river. Oh. And it was uh, late spring, so the river was just booming with snowmelt. Mm-hmm. And so I had to swim across and get this stupid dog. And, <laughs> it's like a reverse uh, Lassie was, situation. Yeah, yeah. And so there I am on the other side of the river from where the trail is trying to figure out how to get back. Uh, because I, because I barely got across in the first place right? Yeah, and I, and, and I was going to have to carry a dog back. And this was on a section of the Appalachian trail, mm-hmm. a place in Maine called Gulf Haggis. And one of the AT Ridgewalkers appears on the bluff, uh, at the trailhead. Okay. So we were shouting back and forth and he's, and he's pointing me to the easiest spot to get back across. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I, I made it back across. It was hairy, but I did it and, um, got my dumb dog back up, um, onto, onto the trail. And then I climbed up these rocks to get back up there myself. I was talking to the Ridgewalker and I said, did you just like happen to wander by? And he said, no, your dog, your other dog came and got me. <laughs> and, uh, so, and so apparently my smart dog had run all the way back up the trail to the parking lot and like started trying to get people's attention. And wow. the Ridgewalker noticed him and followed him back down the trail. So I was telling Trebek this story and afterwards he said, Woof. <laughs> and, and so after all my friends saw the episode, they were like, "You got Alex Trebek to bark like a dog." Uh, yeah, and I, I guess for and, and so maybe that's the most memorable thing, really. I would I would say yeah, that definitely yeah. counts. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for sharing. That's so fun. It was fun. Yeah. Well, typically when we start the show, we we talk a little. We open up our bookmarks and see what we're reading at the moment. Uh, do you have anything you want to share that you've read recently? Oh, geez, I'm I'm always reading like eight or ten different books at Same. once, and yeah. and um, let me see. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately because okay. I'm on a couple a couple of different research jags, and so I'm reading uh, this book that came out. Let me see. I've got it in my hands right here. Let me see. When it came out. Oh, it's 10 years old now. But in honor of baseball opening day, I'm reading a book called Satch, Dizzy, and Rapid Robert. About, okay. Uh, Satchel, pa- Satchel Page and Dizzy Dean and mm-hmm. Barnstorming. Fascinating. Great stuff. And um, I'm reading a couple of books about spiritualism and weirdo beliefs in uh, the 20th century. One is called uh, Calling the Spirits, History of Seances. And then mm-hmm. there's another one that's set in post-war Germany called A Demon Haunted Land. Oh. Those are both pretty cool. Uh, you know, anything which, like that that we have in the library collection vanishes. They're the things that get stolen the most. Yep. I don't yeah, know why, true. but it's true. Yeah. And there's certain writers that get... I used to work in bookstores. Okay. And, um, you know, I had one bookstore that I worked at that uh, we just we stopped stocking Bukowski. Yeah. And uh, and there are, uh, there are other writers like that, too. But uh, it's just everybody would steal them constantly. Yeah. Reading a couple of novels too. I, I'm, I'm in the middle of. Uh, everybody's already reading uh, Yad Jassy's next book, but I'm just reading Homegoing right now. Okay, uh, which is terrific. And another book by uh, this uh, this writer who writes under the pen name of Zigzag Claiborne, and uh, the book is called Afro Puffs Are the Antennae of the Universe. <laughs> and this book is a hoot. It's a sequel to another book he wrote called The Brothers Jetstream. They're both totally worth checking out. I mean, the um, titles alone are, are pretty exciting. So, yeah, I believe Yeah, that. and the whole books have that same kind of vim, you know. They just zoom right along. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find, you know, because because writing is your profession, do you ever find it difficult to, like, turn off a, a more critical side of you? Like, when you're reading other books, do you sort of, like, pick it apart? Or are you able to just, like, sit back and relax and enjoy it? Well, so, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> there are certain books... <laughs> there are certain books that I approach... And that I start reading because I want to see what this writer is up to. Mm-hmm. 
you know. And then there are other books that I read just because I kind of, you know, because I kind of heard they're cool or because I'm going to be on a plane for six hours. And those books you sort of approach differently. Yeah. You know, like uh, I'll, re- I'll read, uh, you know, the new Haruki Murakami with a different kind of attention mm-hmm. than you read a, a Jack Reacher novel with yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, it's always nice I to have a steady Jack flow Re- of like the heavy and the light, you know, to sort of offset. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can sit. And it's kind of fun, actually, to mm-hmm. uh, to try to tease apart uh, <laughs> like a, a Reacher novel because yeah. uh, because or or a book like that, you know, that is so formulaic. But the but the guy has figured out exactly how to work the formula. Oh yeah, and you just can't stop from turning the pages. Yeah, it's true. And that's, that, what I always um, find interesting about the Reacher novels too is that they don't they don't follow any like set patterns. I mean, usually, you know, if, if a novel has a, if it's a series, you, they're all going to kind of go linear. They're all going to be, you know, in first person or third, but the Reacher novels, it could be at any time in Jack Reacher's life. Sometimes they're third person, sometimes they're first. It's very unusual yeah. for a series like that. Yeah. And um, especially the, the first like eight or 10 of them. And then yeah. he kind of settled into some patterns yeah. and <laughs> now I guess he's sick of them and he handed up, handed them off to his brother anyway. Yeah. So. That was interesting. Uh, yeah. I think he just, he just didn't want to write them anymore. Yeah, uh, but but geez, it must be hard to walk away from the money. So I would get say, else to do it. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. there's still there's still such big business. I mean, every time another one comes out, the hold list on those things, you know, goes on for days. People just I'm sure love yeah. them. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks. That's that's interesting. Thanks for sharing. Uh, let's get yeah. into some of the books that you've written. Okay. Uh, I'd like to start with, an, and <laughs> I knew I was going to say it wrong, Anthropocene Rag. Could you tell us a little bit about this one? You didn't say it wrong. You said it right. Oh, good. Yeah, Anthropocene Rag started off, I, I first had the glimmer of the idea for that book a long time ago, like in 2002. And at that point, the book was all about this place called Monument City. hmm which appears in Anthropocene Rag, but uh, but only in, in a very different way than I initially imagined. Okay. You know, the the book as I first imagined it was going to be kind of a biography of Monument City. Okay. And uh, you know, like a a classic kind of French modernist flaneurs like walk through this weird old place. Yeah, and um, here it sort of acts a little bit more like the Promised Land, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you you never actually see it, mm. although it's described a couple of times, but none of the descriptions are actually reliable. Mm. So uh, so nobody nobody really knows what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for Life 7, and he's not giving you the straight story. <laughs> um, and then I got more interested in the people who would be doing something like this. And then from there, I got more interested in the ways this idea that um, after the boom, after this kind of unleashed uh, uh, nanotech that begins to self-organize into intelligences, um, it occurred to me that like uh, that these new intelligences would want to understand where they had come from mm-hmm. because everybody wants to understand that, uh, but they don't have stories, and they don't they don't have a history, and so they would naturally turn to the histories and stories of their creators, um, whom they understand to be us, and so what happens? Uh, so Anthropocene Rag is basically the story of um, this this brand new sort of set of infinitely distributed intelligence is trying to make sense of the world that we have dropped them into. Yeah. And then there are these people who, uh, who have to live in this world and they follow this quest to try and get to Monument City and see if it's real. Yeah. You know, when reading it, one of the things that I, I kept finding interesting about it is because, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously the, the setting is, is futuristic and it's clearly sci-fi, but it's, it kind of rests on a, 
a much older style format where, you know, I kept feeling like it, you know, this band of traveling group, you know, going going from place to place. It has that feeling of like an old style, uh, like a fable or a folktale. And I thought that was a really interesting way to tell that story. Well, yeah, thanks. And that's certainly part of what I was after, you know, because, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of Huck Finn in it, but there's yeah. also, there's at least as much something something along the lines of the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, yeah, each of the that. pilgrims has their own story. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't want to just tell the story sequentially, so I had to, I had to sort of chop them up and intermingle them. You know, then the uh, the artificial intelligences have their own versions of the story, too, and they're trying to... And then the reader gets drawn in, you know, because one of the things that I was thinking about as I was writing this book is that as, you know, as I was writing the book, I was entering into this conversation, but I was also trying to invite the reader of the book into the conversation. And yeah. that sometimes... The book does that more directly than others, you know. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your use of American folklore in the story? Because I, you know, when I was a kid, I feel like those kind of stories were everywhere. You know, Paul Bunyan and, and all of that. I mean, that was that was all over the place. And then I feel like I went 30 mm-hmm. years without hearing anything about it. But lately, it seems like, particularly in like in YA or, or um, you know, junior level novels, more and more American folklore is sort of having its day again. What's your interest there? Why did you decide to use that in this story? Well, those because those stories have been rattling around in my head since I was like three. Yeah. And um, you're right. You know, you don't see much in the way of uh, people engaging with them. And then one of the funny things that, that I've noticed over the years is that a lot of the time when you do see someone engaging with American folklore, it's a European writer. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to see, I wanted to, you know, poke around at those stories and see, you know, which ones still felt, you know, relevant. And also look at the ways in which we have taken some actual historical things and turn them into fables. You know, like the story we tell about Sacagawea is not at all what happened. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that's just one example. And, and uh, so I wanted to, uh, to kind of float around in that space where history is becoming story and look at, you know, why we feel, why we feel the need to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and the, the, the six main characters in the book who, uh, who, you know, get these golden tickets, they're all kind of doing the same thing too. Yeah. They're trying to make sense of where they fit into all this. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it seemed like if I was going to write a story that took place from New York to San Francisco and everywhere in between, basically, that um, I wanted the stories of all those places to be shining through in my story. Now, is there thoughts to continuing either this narrative or another story set in this world? Because it seems like there's plenty there to do that with. Uh, I mean, yeah, I could, I, I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big spacious world and there's yeah. all kinds of, uh, um, there's lots of stuff I cut out of the book that, mm-hmm. uh, that would be, you know, lead in, in various interesting directions, Okay, but I've only ever gone back to a story setting once. And do you just and... find that not as rewarding or you'd rather just, you know, set it and move on? Well, by the time I have lived with an idea for long enough to actually get it written down in a way that I like it and then get it out into the world between covers. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had it with those people, <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, and, yeah. and, uh, and I think we're all ready to move on and get some distance from each other. One exception is this, the only sort of high fantasy sword and sorcery thing I ever wrote. I've come back to that one twice. Okay. And so I, I've, I've written three stories set in that world, but you know, I mean, it, it, there's maybe, I've published maybe 50 other short stories mm-hmm. and, and 10 books maybe. And, and I, I just never really want to go back hmm. except for every once in a while. I think oh, I'd be kind of cool to do. Like my first novel is Scattering of Jades, and mm-hmm. with uh, this this guy and his daughter getting to St. Louis, and every once in a while I think about writing, coming back to that story and picking her up as an adult. Yeah, and she's a journalist in in San Francisco. I know that, but uh, 
Um, but I don't know what else she's doing. And so, um, but most of the time, no, it's, yeah. uh, I just, I, I'm done. Yeah, that makes sense. So now is the, uh, the era of the reboot and the sequel, right? So maybe, maybe now is oh. the time. Uh, before we move on yeah. from this book entirely, I have to tell you, I'm also from Michigan and I picked up on a lot of little Michigan references in there. So I, I got to cool. chuckle out of every one of those. So. All right. <laughs> Did you ever see the Mickey Mouse, the, the Mickey Mouse stencil on the sidewalks in Ann Arbor? No. Cause that's real. Oh, really? Okay. Um, no, I've spent yeah. plenty of time in Ann Arbor, but no, I didn't know that one. If you ever get back to Ann Arbor, it may still be there. It's on... It's a cool um, town. Yeah, it is. It's on either Liberty or Washington. Okay. As you go down the hill past Main Street, like between 1st and 2nd, um, okay. down toward the theater company, the Performance Network used to be down there. Sure. And there's uh, one of those parking meters down there is where, is where those Mickey Mouse ears were. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, anyway. a, that's a cool image, just waiting for the shadow to land just right. I, I did like that. That's cool. I used to stand there looking at it, waiting for the sun to... to, to <laughs> just looking at your watch for six hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned some uh, some of your use of history in, in this book, so I want to talk about some of your historical graphic novels, because I have to admit, before I read Far Side of the Moon, the story of Apollo 11's third man, I did not mm -hmm. know the name Michael Collins. I mean, that was... I You're just not the only one. I, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I just didn't know that at all. So I'm curious, was that a particular interest of yours? How did that topic come about? How did you How did you get on that project? I have always loved space. Yeah. Um, and like the first time that I ever went to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, I, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if you've ever been there, but you no. walk in and the front lobby is full of like Gemini and Mercury capsules. And then there, right in the middle of this big entry hallway is Apollo 11. Oh, wow. And I just, I, I'd like burst into tears the first time I saw it. It, yeah. just, it was just, uh, um, and you can touch it. You can actually, I mean, it's mostly behind plexiglass, but there's this one spot where you can stick your hand in it. And you can actually, oh, wow. You That's can crazy. actually touch. And I got goosebumps just talking about I it. Bet. Right so, I bet. Uh, a few so years I've back, always... I interviewed uh, one of the NASA scientists who worked on this mission uh, for the podcast here. Oh. And it was, the most interesting thing about it was just hearing like the little mundane things that went into it, you know. Just mm -hmm. just a bunch of people just doing a job, and suddenly, you know, we have people in space. So, yeah, it's really, it's a fascinating yeah. story. But, like I said, Michael Collins was not a name I knew. So, uh, it, your graphic novel certainly made me want to learn more. So, yeah, let, let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, it, it's a pretty cool story. Um, I mean, Michael Collins' story is a, is a, is a pretty cool story. Yeah. Speaking of the Air and Space Museum, he was its first director. Right. And I got involved in this. So, there's a, there's a small press here in Maine called uh, Tilbury House. Mm -hmm. And... One of the guys who was an editor at Tilbury House just reached out to me kind of out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him in a long time. You know, when you're in Maine, you basically run into every other literary person in Maine every so often. <laughs> um, and uh, he had this idea about this Apollo 11 book, and we got to talking about Michael Collins and decided that that was the angle. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole other series of these books planned, and I don't think any, any of the rest of them ever happened. Mm. So yeah, then I just I it was great. I got to like dive in and wallow in in this sort of history of the yeah. Apollo program, and then try and distill it down to like sixty pages for a ten year old. Yeah, and... well, I think the format's really effective too. You know, the the long, wide graphic novel versus in the, the traditional side, mm -hmm. the limited color and everything. I just think the whole package is is really cool. Yeah, it came out looking really neat. Yeah, and that's, it did. Uh, um, and that was. You know, the artist uh, obviously had a huge influence on that, mm -hmm. Ben Bishop, and, sure. and the book's design, doing the pages in landscape, that came straight from Tilbury. And, okay. and once I had that in my head, you know, then that's when I, I kind of hit on this idea that each page would be framed. And you can see this in a lot of the backgrounds on the pages, um, would be framed by the, um, 
command module orbiting the moon mm. um, in the background, mm-hmm. and so each page is supposed to be one orbit. It's not oh, exactly because okay. because I, I think you I think you went I think there were fifty seven orbits, okay. um, and the book isn't exactly fifty seven pages, yeah. but you know, I was um, aiming for that. Mm-hmm. And then to tell, but to tell his whole life because here's a guy who you know, like you said, um, everybody knows Armstrong and Aldrin, mm-hmm. but then they don't get home without Michael Collins. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, and then his whole story about, you know, because he, he, he probably would have walked on the moon if he hadn't had the neck surgery mm-hmm. and if he hadn't retired after Apollo 11. Yeah. He was in line to go to the moon again. Yeah. But he, he gets back. I mean, can you imagine that? You get within 60 miles of the moon. Yeah. And then you fly home and you're like, okay, done. Thanks. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And the, even yeah. even his uh, his time on Apollo 11, that, that was kind of a fluke too, wasn't it? Yeah, because the crews got all shuffled around. Right, someone was um, sick or something. A couple of times. Yeah, yeah. The way it all came together was, uh, I mean, I guess it was always going to be like that because no process like that ever runs smooth. Mm-hmm. And to and to be the guy, you know, I'm taken by this moment. I, I, this is a moment that that almost everybody uh, really responds to in, in Colin's autobiography. And he we talks about the first time that he's alone in Columbia, going around the far side of the moon. Mm-hmm. And, I'll, and he has this moment where he realizes every other human being who has ever existed mm. is over there. Yeah. And I'm over here. Yeah. And that's something that that nobody before or since that only got to happen one time yeah. in human history. And he's so the guy that did to it. think about. Yeah. Yeah. And so then he goes and does all these other interesting things with his life. I mean, he's. Uh, I would love to meet Michael Collins. He's still around. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed reading the book, and we have it in our collection. So, listeners, you know, Excellent. we we can get it. Uh, let's let's move on to another one of your nonfiction works, and this must have been a massive undertaking: the comic book story of baseball. I mean, how many years of your life did you carve out just researching baseball history for this? Oh man, I have been reading about baseball since I was a kid. Yeah. So I I sort of had some of this stuff in the bank already. Um, but oh, and today's opening day, so it's a totally apropos. Perfect. We should be talking about this. Perfect. Um, and. Uh, I'm hoping the Tigers will not be quite so terrible this year. Um, so um, I had this idea. The book came out in 2018, so it was probably the fall of 2015. Mm-hmm. I was at New York Comic Con walking around the floor with my agent, and another one of his clients had just launched this book called The Comic Book Story of Beer. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was talking to my agent about, uh, you know, the, the publisher was thinking of doing some other comic book story of XYZ things. And I was like, oh, they should totally do a book about baseball. <laughs> and he and he stopped. And he was like, well, baseball was one of the things we talked about the last time I had a call with him, but we didn't know who we would, who we would get to write it. Uh-huh. And I said, well. Boy, right place, right time for you there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I went home and wrote up a pitch, and they took it. And, and then I had to find an artist. And so I, I knew Tom Coker was a baseball fan, and we mm-hmm. had previously worked together on Daredevil Noir, and, and I love his art. And so I called him up and, and – uh, it was a big project, which is kind of intimidating for art- artists sometimes. Yeah. Um, but we got it figured out, and uh, and then he brought in C.P. Smith to do some of the other work, and they kind of had a division of labor where C.P. did a lot of the sort of layouts and background, and okay. Tom did most of the figures, and they, and they had this cool workflow thing going. By late fall of 2015, I had everything in place, and then, I, it, and then it took me about a year and a half mm-hmm. to, to get the script together. And then... Um, I was turning it in in batches to give Tom and CP time to, you know, get ahead and get started yeah. on things. And, and, um, and then we were also, uh, 10 speed, the publisher was, uh, this was kind of a new thing, new thing for them. And so they were going round and round with Tom and CP about design stuff and layout stuff. And everybody was trying to figure out what everybody else was doing. And it was a really 
unlike any other book I've ever worked on because there were so many moving parts oh, and yeah. things kept coming and things were changing on the fly. And I've been I've worked on books that did that before, um, but not in this way. Mostly when I've worked on books where a lot of things are changing, it just means I have to rewrite stuff. Mm-hmm. It, but in this project, you know, every time something changed and the art changed, the layout changed, the page structures changed. And so uh, it was a big, big, hairy book. Um, yeah. Well, it's so, and, I mean, it's so informative for one. And I feel like that's that's a really challenging thing to do, I would assume, to have something that, that is that has that many facts in it without feeling like just sort of like an information dump. And it really doesn't, you know, it, it moves and feels like a graphic novel. So I, I just, I feel like that would have been particularly hard to do. Did you find yourself having to go back and, you know, cut or rework things to, to make sure that flow was working? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is an anecdote from the first book that Tom and I worked on together, but it, but it, it will illustrate the process of the baseball book too. Like, so I was writing this Daredevil, this Daredevil book with Tom. And I had this fight scene in mind. And mm-hmm. so I wrote this this huge, detailed two or three page sequence where Daredevil fights all these all these bad guys in this uh, brewery and mm-hmm. chaos, everything flying everywhere. And I had it all choreographed down to, you know, every punch, every kick and, okay. and, and all this stuff, because it, it was I, I had just started writing comics and I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Tom calls me up and it was the first time we'd ever talked on the phone. OK. And uh, we, we chatted for a while, and then he says, "Hey, so uh, I'm looking at this, this this fight scene that you wrote in this issue, and you know, just so you know, a lot of time uh, a writer will just kind of go like they fight. <laughs> Insert fight <laughs> here." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh!" And so there were there were moments in the baseball book that were like that too, because there were so many stories I wanted to yeah. tell, you know. And then Tom would call me up and say, "Look, I can't fit this many words on the page. Right? There's, you know, there's 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 too many panels." Yeah. And so then I would call up 10 speed and beg them for more pages mm-hmm. and they would say no. And, and, uh, and so there's a lot of stuff that is one panel in, in the book as it is started mm-hmm. off as a page, as a page. Oh, okay. You know? Okay. But I mean, the upside of that is I got a lot of stuff in there cause there's so many great stories in baseball oh, yeah. and, it, and it does, and it does move because, you know, Tom and CP have a better visual sense of how comics work than I mm-hmm. do because they're artists and I'm not. Oh, sure. So that's one of the keys to making a good comic is everybody has to listen to each other. Yeah. So it was great. The book would not exist, obviously, without their ability to take all this history that I wanted to dump into the mm-hmm. book and uh, and make it comprehensible on the page. What is um, your What's your favorite era in, in baseball history? Oh, boy. Uh <laughs> So I guess I would have two answers to that. Okay, and I'll one allow it. Is <laughs> one is I I love the late twenties and thirties just because of the you know the personalities of the game then mm-hmm. and then also I because I was a kid the eighties I think oh, the eighties sure. yeah. as, as an era in baseball are are underrated I mm-hmm. think a lot of the players from the eighties are underrated the analytics guys will tell you different but. Um, a lot of great things happened in baseball in the eighties. You know, mm-hmm. there was um, the, the la- a bunch of three hundred game winners and, and various other records that that were set. And uh, um, you had players like Ricky Henderson, and there's nobody like Ricky Henderson in the game anymore. That's why he gets a whole page in the baseball book because I just adore <laughs> Ricky Henderson. Plus, he's a weirdo, so that makes it more fun to write fun. about him. That's always Yeah, yeah. Uh, so those would be my two favorite eras. Okay. Um, the, the game right now is kind of disappointing because there's so many strikeouts mm. and everything's a strikeout or a home run. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of action on oh, the bases. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what they can do to address that. I yeah. Gather they're, I mean, they're, they're trying some, some things in the minors, 
Um, yeah, I was wondering and, that minors or college, if that's if that makes any difference. Yeah, they're experimenting with uh, banning the shift. Um, they're talking about making the bases a little bit bigger, to, so that would change by oh, okay. you know a couple tenths of a second the time it takes to get from base to base. Sure. Yeah. Well, if they do and, all that, maybe um, you can get a sequel out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, so many stories, and then after you know, because a lot of the research reading that I didn't get around to. Before I had to turn the book in, I'm reading stuff afterwards and thinking, oh, no, why couldn't mm-hmm. I get that in the book? It was a project that was just always too big for the container I was trying to put it in. Yeah. But that means that there, that I just stuffed a lot of stuff into it. I had a blast writing that yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, well, you, well, you can I tell. I mean, it's uh, definitely on the page because it, it is a fun read. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I want to talk a little bit about some of your your tie-in work because this is I mean this is like a soft part of my heart here because this was this was a thing that yeah. got me into reading you know tie-in fiction novelizations that was when I was a kid I just devoured it and it yeah it really is the thing to kind of turn me into a lifelong reader and you've I mean you've just touched so many different uh, franchises here you know Marvel DC Transformers uh, Tom Clancy I you know I actually picked up your Tom Clancy book because that's one that we have in the collection. And I was looking at the back of it, and it was like a pandemic ravishes. And I'm like, no, I don't want to read that. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on something else. I don't think now's the time. But um, I'm just curious: are any of these, any of these projects that you worked on, were what was the thing that you would have like, 13 year old, you would have been like, I get to write that. That's awesome. Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange. First time I got to write lines. First time I got to write lines for Doctor Strange. Okay. It was in a, a, ga- a game called Avengers Alliance. Uh-huh. And I said, I said to my 12 year old self that I have arrived. That's cool. Yeah. The Transformers stuff is fun, but I kind of missed the Transformers when I was a kid, and yeah. so I came into yeah, that too, sideways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when they offered me those Transformers books, I, I I took them because my son was a big Transformers fan. Okay, my older my, my older son. Yeah, and so I went and asked him about him, and he, and he was all about Starscream, and so that's why that's one reason why Starscream has has the kind of role he does. Okay. in uh, <laughs> in those books. Yeah, that's for my son Ian. That stuff it, it's so fun to write because it's all. If it meant something to you when you were a kid, yeah. then yeah, you're playing with toys that you have always loved, and um, and you get to you get to try and invite other people in now, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And also, you realize when you're working on this stuff and fans start to respond to it that uh, the the passion for yeah. all all of these story universes, oh, you know, yeah. whether it's you know Marvel or Transformers or Supernatural mm-hmm. or any of the, uh, mm-hmm. any other ones, um, and that's that's something that you want to you want to reward you want to live up to you want to yeah. say okay these people really love this stuff well and, you're tapping into so nostalgia with that kind of stuff you know so it's a, it's a sure. pretty powerful yeah, yeah. thing yeah absolutely one of your i i feel like I, I have to ask you about this because one way or another it feel, feels like we always end up talking about james patterson on this podcast for better or worse <laughs> so <laughs> i have to ask you about your experience adapting uh, patterson and martin dugard's the murder of king tut into graphic novel that seems like an unusual project how did that come about well um, I had done a Dungeons and Dragons comic with IDW okay. called Ianto's Tomb, mm-hmm. and that was fun. And, and uh, so then, you know, I was, I was like, okay, guys, what do we do next? And uh, they said, well, um, you know, we got this Patterson thing, this Murderer King Cut book, and they sent me the book, and I read it, and I was like, okay, uh, yeah, I could do this. It'd be, it'd be kind of fun. And, and adapting things to other things is yeah. something that, that I do a lot of. Yeah. The only thing was that Patterson or his people or something like that wanted <laughs> to read all the scripts as they came through. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and is that is that why we end with the heroic James Patterson solving the mystery of King Tut in the end? <laughs> yeah, they sent me those pages, and I just had to put them in. Um, so it, it's. Uh, I hope that's true. <laughs> um, well, the, the funny thing was that as I was working on this book, um, literally, you know, I think I was, 
I think I was revising the fifth the fifth issue. Okay. This big article comes out that uh, you know King Tut's death has been solved, and it obviously was not a murder. Mm. And so <laughs> well, the book's the book's whole theory goes yeah, out the window. That's problematic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought the whole thing was was pretty far fetched anyway. But yeah. I, so I approached it like a just a, a kind of alternate history oh, conspiracy sure. take take yeah. on King Tut, and so yeah. I had some fun with it. Yeah, that but, the uh, book. I mean, the hardcover book is always cataloged as nonfiction, and I'm always kind of like, "But is it really?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the Patricia Cornwell when she did her book on Jack the Ripper. Oh yeah, a while back, and she mm-hmm. decided it was some poor artist schlub, and uh, yeah. and she bought a bunch of his art and destroyed it, trying to you know like search for clues, and wow. then it turned out it wasn't him after all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it was one of those things, you know. So like people get a theory, and if they have a lot of money and influence, they get to uh, yeah, they get to publish their theories and i mean i had i had fun with it and yeah. then i think there was going to be some more patterson stuff at idw and okay uh and then it fizzled out for whatever reason i'm not yeah. sure why yeah i don't um, remember anything else happening uh, yeah but i'm not <laughs> okay. sure i would have wanted to do it anyway but because sure. uh, it was it was fun once but it's the kind of thing that is fun once yeah yeah you can check and, that off uh, the list yep yeah, yeah. okay well, looking at your catalog of work, because it covers a, it covers a lot of different areas. I'm wondering, like, what's the one that that you know you feel most proud of? So, like, say if you were a Jeopardy clue, and the answer was Alex Irvine was the author of this, what would you like that question to be? Oh man, uh, you know the truth is that the things that I have written that yeah, you know everybody talks about how hard it is to get the thing that's in your head actually yeah. onto the page. Yeah, and all the times that I feel like I've gotten closest to that mm-hmm. uh, have been short stories. Okay. Which is a drag because nobody reads short stories. <laughs> um, but I love writing them. When you get a short story right, there's no feeling like it. You, you can't ever get a novel right mm. the way you get a short story right. Oh, interesting. You, know, you can write a good yeah, you can write a good novel. You can even write a great novel. I mean, I, and I would like to do that someday. <laughs> but but writing a short story, you can actually get to the end of a short story and realize that it is exactly what you wanted it to be. Mm. Yeah. So there's there are some some short stories that I've written that I think uh, think would stand up along those lines. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I I'm not done writing novels either. So maybe sure. um, maybe there's still a novel out there that would uh, that like, that would be a Jeopardy clue. Okay. All right. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that you failed to answer in the form of a question, but that's okay. Uh, do uh, you have Do you have any uh, upcoming projects that you can tease? Well, let's see. I mean, I'm always working on stuff. Sure. Most of it I can't announce. I'm, yeah, most okay. of what I'm working on actually right now is game stuff. I've, okay. Uh, I'm working on I mean, a, a new game uh, that is going into open beta in May, I think. Okay. And there will be more announcements about it then. And that's fun. It's kind of a uh, science fiction-y kind of co-op, uh, loot and shoot kind of game. Okay. Um, like a cross between Halo and Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, that sounds um, fun. Yeah. And uh, I have, uh, I, I'm working on, always working on new stories and, and new books and everything. And it's, uh, um, but it's weird. I, I'm, I've, once I turned in Anthropocene Rag, I, I went back to working on games. And mm-hmm. so now I'm in this spot where I had this book out and, I've had a couple of short stories out since then. I got a novella in the most recent Asimov's called Glitch. Oh, great. Okay. I like that story a lot, and I'm glad it came out. Um, and what is that called? It, uh, it's called a Glitch. Okay. And I don't know if your library gets Asimov's or not, but if you do, it's in there. All right. Well, what's the best way for people to find you, you know, online or whatever, so they can they can follow any upcoming stuff? 
Oh, well, uh, I'm on, there's a website, alex-irvine.com, which I, is sporadically updated, but uh, has, <laughs> okay. has most of what you'll need to know. Okay. And then, you know, I'm on Twitter at Alex Irvine, and you can find me on Facebook and uh, all the various other social platforms. Um, always happy to chat with people online or uh, answer questions about things I've written or great or things things I might write. So. Okay. Well, hey, I really appreciate it. This was this was a great conversation. Next time in I'm in Ann Arbor, I'm going to go find those Mickey Mouse ears. Now that you told me where you they really are. have to, yeah. I will. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thanks for tuning in to this special interview. You know, if you enjoyed this, you can dive back into the All the Books show archives at soundcloud.com slash allthebooks or wherever you get your podcasts and listen to our special spotlight on Lee Child and his Jack Reacher series, as well as our series of interviews with David Dvorkin, a sci-fi author who also worked on several Apollo programs, including uh, Apollo 11. So again, you can find those at soundcloud.com slash allthebooks. For more with Alex, you can tune into the companion interview we did for the previously on X-Men podcast over on the Radio Meanwhile Network. Uh, Anyway, thanks for tuning in to How's Things this week, and we'll see you next time. (music) 